shake the hands of your neighbor, but from a distance, I'm just kidding. I know more people with COVID now than I ever did during the COVID crisis, eight of which were in my family. But uh, All right, what do you say we pray a little bit? Should we pray a little bit before we get rolling here? Lord Jesus, we obviously need your divine guidance. Holy Spirit, come, give us insight into your word. What do you want us to know? I, I know that you speak often in different ways through the same message, through your word, to, uh, to, to different people. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts, give us a heart that would, first of all, desire to hear from you, and then second of all, have the resolve to act on what you tell us to do. What are you telling me to do? What do you want me to do about it? Lord, those are the two questions that we're going to be asking this morning, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been working through, for those of you who are new, we're working through the Gospel of Luke for the last, I don't know how long, long time, and it takes a while, doesn't it, to really, it's easy just to read things, but to try to dive in and then correlate that to the meta-narrative of all the Scripture is complex, and yet it's invigorating, it's exciting. If you hang in there and you start to really dive into the teaching of Jesus, it will change your life. Remember when Jesus said, in fact, politicians say this all the time, if you will simply do this, well, well they don't add that, they don't ab abide in me. Jesus said, if you'll abide in me, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And yet politicians are always saying, I'm giving you the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, the truth doesn't just set you free. Abiding in Christ and then knowing the truth and then knowing the truth and abiding him will then set you free. So there's, there's a big part missing. So what we're doing when we're going line by line, verse by verse, what we're doing here is we're taking a, a real step towards abiding, abiding in Jesus. And if you're taking this seriously, and I know many of you are, uh, we're, we're, we're growing and we're being challenged. I'm being challenged. I teach through these gospels all the time, have for decades, and it's challenging every time I open the book. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at 14 through 17, just three verses, but it's going to take us all over the place. But these are difficult to understand. They're a little bit enigmatic. They're a little bit mystical. What does he mean by this? Jesus obviously uses all kinds of literary devices to try to, com to be compelling and grab people's attention, hyperbolic language, and all kinds of things. Now, remember, it's important that I say this. Remember two things about the Bible. Very important to say. The Bible was not written to everybody, but the Bible was written for everybody. That's important to understand. The Bible is not written to everybody. You can't take every verse and say this was written exactly, you know, to me. It wasn't. Some statements he's making to, for instance, Judas Iscariot or he's re responding to Satan. It's not written to everybody. There's a particular audience, and we have to understand that context. Remember when we talked about coma, C-O-M-A? First, if we're ever reading the Bible, we need to understand the context of what's being written. Uh, what are the observations that we're making? What is the meaning of these observations? And then what is the application for our life? So first of all, what's the context here? Well, it tells us. We've been working through, remember we talked about lost things, we talked about the prodigal, and, and then we, and we talked about the shrewd manager, and now we clipped the very last verse to say, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious Jewish community that were not believing in his messiahship. They were very religious, but they did not see what the prophets had been talking about, well, since from Moses all the way until the time of John, from the law all the way until the time of John. So Luke chapter 16, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money 
were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. That's where we finished off last week. So they, they loved money. They loved the position in the synagogue. They loved the, you know, respectful greetings in the marketplace. They loved all these things, these outward things. And yet they were scoffing at Jesus as he was giving this, these, this kind of thread of parabolic teaching. And then Jesus said, getting a little feedback there. I don't know why. I'm, I don't know if this is too close or what. Uh, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. That just grabs me, doesn't it, you? I don't want to be one of those people to just justify myself in the sight of men, run out and do religious things. So people go, ah, that's a pretty interesting religious guy. I'm glad he's got, I, don't, I couldn't care less about that. I want, I, it's an audience of one. And Jesus is chastising them. You're justifying yourself in the sight of men, but God, God knows your heart for that. <laughs> this, I remember the first time I read this, it absolutely blew me away. I just, I couldn't really understand it. Now, th- notice this. It says, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Those things that are highly esteemed among men, they're detestable in the sight of God. I'm going to get into that in just a second. Let's finish. 16, 17. The law and the prophets. And remember, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets really talking about what we would call the Old Testament or the Tanakh, starting with the Pentateuch and the Torah, the first five books, evolving into, the, you know, we talked about Nevi'im and the Ketavim and talking about the prophets and the law and all these and the writings we talked about that. That's sort of essentially what Jesus is referring to. He just gives it a two-part dichotomy here. He said, they were proclaimed until John. John who? John the Baptist. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. For, what is that? That's just weird. Jesus, what are you trying to say? Forcing. Everyone is forcing his way into the kingdom. He says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone, and then he throws this in. This is kind of a discombobulated almost, unless you understand where Jesus is trying to go to. Go back. Who's he writing it to? And what's, and yes, it's written for me, but he's not writing, he's not writing this. He's, this is specifically to these religious Jews who had, as we'll see in a minute, and we're not going to talk about this more actually once we get to January, uh, not next week because obviously that's Christmas Day, as Pastor Randy said, and we're going to get into this a little bit more. I'm going to get into the, the oddness, it seems the oddness, to just extract something out of nowhere. And oh, by the way, he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, there's no question, whether you're watching online or television or whatever, or you're you're here this morning, there's no question that a lot of you are immediately just going to go, ugh, I guess I'm an adulterer because you've you've married, you know, you went through a divorce. And in our culture, over 50, even within the church, over 50% of marriages fail. And then people remarry, and oftentimes they remarry one who's been divorced. And now, and you just feel, you just walk out of here just kind of like, oh, that was... Oh, that was a difficult message. I, I'm just an adulterer now. I mean, it, what, what is he doing here? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week or the following week. 
Don't be upset. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're just getting there in a slow, meandering way. We're taking a little canoe ride down a long, slow river, okay? Here we go. First of all, I want to, talk, I want to go back to 1615 here. Uh, when it talks about those things that are highly esteemed among men are detestable, detestable in the sight of God. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? Well, there is a world system. And within that world system, I think most people that are breathing would like to, or at least they may not try that hard, but they at least would like to excel within that system. There is a world system. These are the things that we highly esteem. These are the things you should do above all others, right? The pursuit of happiness is one of them, right? It's written right in it's our founding fathers. The pursuit of happiness. I'm glad we live in a country that has that as an option, but from a spiritual standpoint, that is highly esteemed among everybody. But that's not necessarily where Jesus will take us in our walk with him. He's going to give us joy, but the pursuit of happiness is one thing that we just idolize in this country, and it was just as long as it makes you happy. And that's really not the message of Jesus. There's one example. The system is incredibly valued, incredibly valued. And I was thinking about it. Even Hitler pursued. We're going to break this down again in two weeks when we're talking about divorce. Why did Jesus say this? Because there are three functional things that we see. We see it in the temptations in the garden, the temptations in the wilderness with Jesus. We see it in 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's the world system. You can pretty much categorize anything that people are after, you know, I think it was Al Pacino who said, you know, you are whatever you're going after. And it's true. What are you after? What, what gets you up in the morning? What preoccupies your thinking? Is it worship? Is it an advancement of the kingdom? Is it a relationship with Christ? Is it an eternal understanding like the shrewd manager? Jesus was trying to teach us through that very odd, unrighteous steward, but that shrewd manager. Is it something that we're, we're really riveted on Life after death and the kingdom that's now but not fully realized, but we want to bring as many people with us as we can. Or is it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes? Lust just means I really am going after it. I really have to have it. Don't just always, we don't have to sexualize that word. Uh, but lust is just I've got to have it. And then just pride. I mean, if you look at Hitler, he was really after those three things. Boastful pride of life, of course. We're going to... We're going to create a, a beautiful race, you know, the Aryan race. And we're going to get rid of all the, uh, you know, and, and that was a boastful pride of life. And that was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the things that were written, uh, and I even have uh, some people that I know in Europe that says, you know, crime went way down under Hitler and all kinds of things. You know, I mean, he was, he was, of course, he was a fascist. He was a totalitarian. He's a dictator. I mean, there's no question about that. But the fact of the matter is he was after the world system, and he just took it to lengths that we'd really never seen before, a willingness to try to eradicate an entire race. We saw that last week with Esther and Haman and the, the willingness to go so far to capitalize well, to capitalize and put myself in a position where I can boast and be prideful, and then I can have anything my eyes desire. It's the world system. It's the world system. And God doesn't value that system at all. 
It runs contrary to everything that will make the world, well, that'll eventually give us heaven. It runs in direct opposition to what heaven will be like. We, want, we all seek kind of pride. We want to be glorified, but we don't like it when other people seek to be glorified. And that's what hell is. Everybody's pursuing their own glorification. And when you do that, you get war, you get strife, you get theft, you get racism, you get bigotry, you get, you get all those things. I want to be glorified. I'd like for everybody to be looking at me, but I just don't like it when those other people think so much of themselves. It's just an odd thing that we just won't really look into. So what are those things, again, esteemed among men? I just wrote just a few things down that were kind of going through my mind. Power gained through, you know, manipulation or flattery. You can certainly see that in Hitler's life. Talk about manipulative. Fame gained through a willingness to bow to the opinions of men. In other words, you know, let's see, what's the current wave of public opinion? And I will be that. I will buy in. And you, see, you can see Hollywood always clamoring to try to figure out what the current feeling is and the wave of public opinion. You see politicians and you don't like it. Nobody's really standing up for what they said. They're just trying to get the sense in the air, you know. And so we fear the opinions of men. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of man brings a snare. In other words, it's a trap to always try to figure out. At some point, you say, these are the things I know to be true. I believe these things. I choose to follow Jesus, the one resurrected for me, crucified and resurrected for me. I choose to, even in a culture that hates all this, I choose to be one of those people as marginalized as that community may be in our current culture. But I'm not going to do this every time. Well, what does my neighbor think? What, am I, what does my family think? And it's because of that Jesus would use this hyperbolic language. You must hate father, mother, brother, sister on account of me. How about beauty used to seduce and, and to manipulate as well? Or just self-promotion in general trying to, again, self-promotion is just my attempt to try to glorify me so where everybody can look at me and go, look, 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 look. Because we feel such a deficit in our soul. We need that to try to, to, try to raise ourselves up. And yet if... The paradox is that when we raise Jesus up, we, we're actually, we actually begin to feel the very purpose for which he put us on the earth, and then we relax. We can breathe for the first time. We don't feel like we have to chase the world system. And, of course, the appearance of right, righteousness without the corresponding sanctification. So those are all things that the world system aspires to do. That's the world system, okay? So let's think about this for a second. There is a world system. There is a world system. It is impossible to escape this world system without divine intervention. But then Jesus says, and the law and the prophets prophesied until John, but now people are forcing their way into this radical, crazy, unseen, mystical ride we have that's called the kingdom of God, living under the very sovereign, the very sovereignty of God himself. It's impossible to enter this kingdom, it's impossible to escape this world system without divine intervention. But then the law and the prophets show up and Jesus is saying, everything they were saying, the time is now. Divine intervention is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can escape the world system. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Now, the strange part of this is that Jesus, and they, but they're forcefully entering into it. In other words, to enter into it, it's going to be forceful. It's going to be a violent thing. We'll see that uh, in, in Jesus' commentary in Matthew 11 as well. 
Violent men are taking it by force. What does that mean? Does that mean that we go out and we bomb abortion clinics and then we kill, we kill the infidels and all this? Of course not. We're going to see what it means. But it's going to require to believe into the prophets and believe into this kingdom. It's going to require one of the most forceful, radical acts that you've ever engaged in in your life. And it cannot just be something you add to your life. It's going to have to completely and utterly disrupt your life and upend it. And you're going to go in a completely and utterly different direction. That's what he's really saying here. So what about these law and the prophets? What about the law and the prophets? What do you mean the law and the prophets? Let's go back again. Luke 16, what does he say? He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God... Uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone's forcing, forcing, forcing their way into it. Forcing their way into it. Well, what is it about the law and the prophets that were so significant? I was thinking about this even a little bit this morning as I was kind of pondering this and I was trying. I always ask Jesus, what, what do you want me to say to your people? What, what is it that you, and again, I don't, I don't claim to ever have heard the audible voice of Jesus, but give me some direction here. What, how, how, what kind of food do you want to feed your people today? Give us this day our daily bread. I'm responsible for the, at least a little bit of the distribution of this bread today. And what do you want me to say? And I just, I just felt compelled in my heart that, again, what's so important to understand, the law and the prophets give us a picture of the story of Israel. And that's critical. Why? Because it was through Israel that all these prophecies came that give me intellectual stimulation to know that it's not just my experience with Jesus, although that's a radically important part of my walk with him, but there is an ability for me to love God with my mind because God was speaking through the prophets and through the law for almost 1,500 years, and then Jesus came along and says, Moses was talking about me. By everything Moses was writing, all the Pentateuch, he was talking about me, not just kind of the spirit of me, no, with great specificity that there was going to be a prophet coming, that there was going to be a, a savior, there was going to be a lamb coming. That's why we're Church of the Red Door. It's Exodus 12. It's the lamb, the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost of your life to be passed over in sin. I mean, that, that's the very point. And all the law and the prophets prophesied. We're looking forward until John the Baptist. As the great philosopher Yogi Berra once says, it's tough making predictions, especially about the future. Anyway. So I, it, who, could, who can tell you what's going to happen 1,500 years, 1,000 years, you know? Sometimes the things were fulfilled even within a 100-year period of time. Who can... Who has, the, who has the audacity to make predictions hundreds of years in advance except for, well, except for a power, a force that's not subject or bound to time and space that knows, just as the Bible said, knows the end from the beginning. The law and the prophets prophesied until John. They gave us a picture. So I was thinking about, if I, if I just picked up, there are a lot of people out there that are practicing 
a religion, and how did they buy into it? I was even seen saw, saw something last night, and was this is a big movement now. They're it's crumbling as a lot of these things are. It's kind of a hybrid, calling itself Christianity, but then they they had these great apostles that really or, or the origins were in Mexico, I think, and uh, and they had the apostle, and God only speaks through this particular apostle, and then it turned into all these cult things to happen. It's some kind of sexual deviancy and, and nonsense that emerges and power grabs and everything. It's just the world system parading as, as religion. That's all that is. And it, it happens over and over and over over the last 2,000 years, uh, of, of, unfortunately, of church history. What is it that's compelling to me. Well, I guess you could hear about something. That guy's a real, you know, he's really important and the, he's an apostle of the, and God speaks through him. And all. I guess some people just hear that and they go, oh, I'll buy into that. I'm just not one of those people. I'm not one of those people that just heard about Jesus. All right, I'll buy into that. I need something more. I need three things. I need faith. And how do we get faith? Well, I read the Bible. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God according to Paul's letter to the Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So my faith grows when I read the Bible. But then when I'm reading the Bible, what happens? I get the entire story of Israel, primarily through the law and the prophets. And in doing so, I understand the nature of God. I understand uh, my own personal journey as we talk about all the time. We come out of Egypt. We go through our baptism in the Red Sea. We go into the wilderness. And eventually, if we fulfill the calling that God has for us, we cross the Jordan and begin to take spiritual territory, the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God. So I learn things like that. That gives me great uh, excitement, and it also prophesies of Jesus. So it, it informs my experience. So I, it increases my faith. I need that. I need something to inform my experience. And then when I experience it, I go, now I've experienced it. But experience alone, a lot of people are out there today that have spiritual experiences. And they said, I've had spiritual experiences. You know, I, I, I got on a Ouija board and it moved, or I got in this, or I've, I've dealt with the demonic, or, or they, they might think it's angels or light or whatever. And what does Paul say? Of course, even Satan appears as an angel of light. Of course, people are having spiritual experiences. You're a spiritual being living in a body. You're going to have spiritual experiences, but I want my spiritual experiences to be informed I don't want to just randomly have a spiritual experience and then follow anything. People die. This is life and death. People die in this nonsense, this cultic stuff and all the things that emerge over time. And I need, I need to pursue something logically. I need to know that, in fact, as I said a minute ago, God lives outside of time and space. And because of that, and that's how we define God, he's not subject to time and space. He is the, the question, as you've heard me say before, the great answer to the one existential question that must always be asked. Who shall I say sent me? And Moses, and God responds, I am. I just am. There, I'm, I am the, I'm the grounding for all reality, and I am outside of time and space. I am first cause. Who caused me? Nobody, by definition, caused me. I am first cause. Whether it was a Big Bang or whatever it was, I'm first cause. That's who God is, and that is I pour over the law and the prophets, even apart from the gospels, as I pour over, and then I understand the story of Jesus through the gospels, I go, 
Clearly, he is everything they saw coming. The law and the prophets prophesied until John. And even John was prophesied. Isaiah 40, Malachi. I mean, John was prophesied. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and John looks up and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Not only the king, not only the servant, servant, the Lamb of God. Not just the Son of Man, not just the bread of life, not just the light of life, not just, not just the living water, not all the different metaphors that were used throughout the Law and the Prophets. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And one day he'll come back. He'll come back as king. His first coming, he came well. It's what people at least ostensibly are supposed to be celebrating during the time of Christmas. He came as one that was unimpressive. He didn't, Isaiah had seen this 700 years before. Not that impressive. Just a normal-looking Jewish man came into the world to seek and save the lost into a manger. I want to do this this morning, and then we'll close. I, I want to look at this. Acts 13, I think it's important for us to really explore, really explore how the early apostles, the disciples, took what they understood from their interaction with Jesus. Now, in this case, it's going to be Paul, who was Saul, who was not one of the original 12 disciples, but was waylaid on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to kill these Jews who believed in Jesus and were following him. And he has this experience and was blinded on the road to Damascus. How did Paul then studying for years? He, he went out in the wilderness and he studied and he went away and he was trying to... He was now taking everything in the law and the prophets that we had just seen. And he was saying, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, that's what they meant. And then he turned around and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, which was essentially... This is what they said, and this is how Jesus fulfilled it. Of course, they were talking about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the law and the prophets saw coming. How did he do that? So on their first missionary journey, he'd, he'd made his way up to Syrian Antioch, not Pisidian Antioch. And then he took their first missionary journey. He took with him Barnabas and Mark, and then Mark deserted them. And anyway, they, they had a little falling out, but then they came back together a little bit later. I just want to explore this, Luke, Acts 13, their first missionary journey, and see how did Paul pro provoke people to explore the gospel? Now, they had somewhat of an advantage because it was their text. So he would go to first to the synagogue, but he always predicated it as did Jesus on the law and the prophets. And I always say that because you have to understand that Jesus said, if I'm not, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm kind of giving a little commentary here, but if I'm not systematically fulfilling all this, do not believe in me. In other words, Jesus said, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, in other words, if I'm not doing everything that the law and the prophets have been seeing for all these hundreds of years, don't believe in me. Don't do it. I don't care what your experiences is, if you feel good when you go to church, if you, you know, you like the poinsettia, poinsettias, I don't even know how to pronounce it. If you like, you know, just being together, if you like free, you know, donut holes or whatever out there, or coffee or please, I mean, you know, it's fine to come, but just call it what it is. It's a social gathering where we get together and we, but in terms of following Jesus, Jesus said, do not do this unless I'm doing the works of the Father. In other words, unless I'm just systematically walking out everything, these prophets and this law and this, everything, down to the detail. Now, because Paul knew that, 
Listen to what he does on his first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13, verse 14. Bear with me. Bear with me. Hang in there. I know sometimes when we read, but if you can put all this in context, this will really help you in your own conversation, just even off-the-cuff off conversations you may have with a friend or a neighbor or a family member or something. Watch the pattern. Watch the pattern. It says, verse 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived at the city in Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Okay, so first of all, we knew the, not, the first audience here is the synagogue. Clearly, over and over, you'd see Paul go first into the synagogue and then into the streets. He knew he was called the Gentiles, but he always, it was kind of an orderliness to that. We see that the gospel came first to the, the, to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Okay, so we see an orderliness. So he goes in and sat down. And now, each day, they would then reading from the Torah. And I think we have that picture up there. Reading of the law and the prophets. Notice, what are they doing? Well, normally in a synagogue, you would go in, and they would be reading from the law and the prophets, what we would, again, call the Old Testament. And, uh, and the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people. We've got to realize, Paul coming into their midst is a big deal. He studied under one of the greatest teachers, Gamaliel, uh, in, 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 in Judea, in Jerusalem there. Uh, he was an incredibly erudite guy. And they're like, wow, we're out here in the, in the diaspora in some Gentile corner of Asia Minor, and you're in our midst. If you have anything you want to say, go ahead, speak to us. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, this is what he said. He said, men of Israel, he says, and you who fear God, listen to me. So there's two things. Who's he speaking to? I always ask that. Men of Israel, so he says to the Jewish leaders, and you who fear God, even if that was a proselyte, somebody who might have just come in off the streets, wanted to be involved in the synagogue, they were there. He says, now listen, listen. The God of this people, Israel, so how, what does he start with? That's what I said a minute ago. It's so important to understand, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just God. I hear this all the time. Well, you know, all paths lead to God. Everybody's worshiping as best they know. You know, I, it's kind of the elephant thing. I'm, I'm touching the tail. It feels like this. I'm touching the trunk. I'm touching the leg. They're really big. And everybody has a different take on God. That just is, that is just not biblical. We are worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because he revealed himself to a people so that we, when he came, when the ultimate Savior of the world, not just the Savior, when he came, everybody go, that's him. I'm going to tell you in advance everything that he's going to do, everything he's going to, all the, many of the things he's going to say, I'm going to show you in advance, it's clearly Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. So that the world, that's me, 21st century, reading my Bible and going, I just, that's unfathomable to me that they, this was written a thousand years before the time of Jesus, and he perfectly fulfilled it. Even current extant manuscripts and other things confirm that Jesus did that. And it emboldens my faith. But Israel is the key. So Paul starts with Israel, the story of Israel. It's hard to talk about Jesus without talking at some point about the story of Israel and the God and the Messiah and the king that they saw coming. It's very difficult to, in a compelling way, talk and share the gospel without mentioning the nation of Israel. That's what he did. 
men of Israel, and you fear God. Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose, catch this, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Well, they were enslaved, but they became numerous. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. Who had the uplifted arm? That was Moses, a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And these things he gave them, uh, judges until Samuel, the prophet. He's just going through the history of Israel. It's important. Notice how he's sharing the God. He's wanting to get to Jesus. He's not just saying, hey, there's this guy, and he was claimed to be resurrected from the dead. Pray to him, and maybe you'll have an experience with him. That is not how he preaches the gospel. He said, this has historical context. See, that's one of the things you have to get. If you start studying your Bible, you're going to go, wow, this has historical context. This is not just some guy in a cave dreaming up random things that are <laughs> virtually unprovable and then asking you to acquiesce with them. Wow, what a word. What a word today. Um, I would say that uh, we've all been called in different ways. And uh, this is a great season to reflect on that, to uh, really find the truth and what you're doing and why you're in the kingdom and why you're here. So with that, I'll, I'll close this out. Lord, thanks so much for today. Thanks for the message, Lord. Thanks for the people that are here, the people online. Uh, we truly want to serve you, the purpose you have for us, the truth you have for us, and how we can do that. Uh, we thank you for this season, for your son, Emmanuel. He is with us. He's among us. You've left us with the Holy Spirit to be guided by that and through that. We pray for Jeff, for his voice to be back, and uh, for his, all of us folks who are suffering right now, Lord, whether through COVID or circumstances and family and, and uh, those that will be serving in the angel tree and the families that have parents that aren't there. Father, we just pray our blessing on all of them. We pray our blessing on... Uh, on this church and what we have in front of us and the pastors among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Greetings, Church of the Red Door family. Mike and Lisa Major from our home in La Quinta wishing you a Merry Christmas and a wonderful holiday celebration of that of our Savior. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. My name is Chuck Hall, and along with my wife, Christy, we want to wish you a very happy holiday season. Church at the Red Door has been such a blessing to us because they have helped us to have a deeper and more personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So happy birthday to Jesus and Merry Christmas to all of you. Amen. Hi, this is Donna Kathy Bear. And we are so excited this year that after 15 months of bringing Starbucks coffee, to the Century Theater. Now we get to bring donut holes to this fantastic facility here at the college. Hope you have a great Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hi, I'm B. Dine. And I'm B. Dine. And we would like to wish our church family a very, very Merry Christmas. And we'd like to share a scripture pas passage with you, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So blessings from our home to, to your yours. home. Happy Christmas. Hi. We're Tom and Danielle Emmett wishing you a blessed and Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Season greetings from La Quinta Church, the Red Door. My name is Dan Best. And I'm Constance Best. And we want to wish you a very, Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas. And a happy and, and healthy, healthy New Year. Year. Merry Christmas, Take everyone. Care. Well, hello, CRD Church family. I'm Dwayne McNett. And I'm Nancy McNett. And we want to wish you, our church family at CRD, a very Merry Christmas. Here's a promise from God's Word. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, everyone. everyone.